Welcome to the Great Awakening Podcast, Deconstructing Wokeness One Concept at a Time. I'm your host, Josh Dawes. In the last episode, we examined what it means to be woke. At its most basic definition, being woke simply means being aware of and concerned about injustice. The problem with wokeness is not its concern about injustice, but rather its understanding of injustice. That understanding is provided by an ideology that is formed around ideas and concepts produced by an academic discipline known as critical theory. The first seed of what would later become woke ideology was planted in the fertile soil of academia in 1937 with the publishing of an essay written by German philosopher Max Horkheimer. Horkheimer fled Europe in 1933 after the rise to power of Adolf Hitler. He and his colleagues at the Frankfurt University Institute for Social Research relocated to New York City and found a home at Columbia University. Collectively, these men and their work became known as the Frankfurt School. Along with Horkheimer, other notable members included Herbert Marcuse, Theodore Adorno, and Walter Benjamin. In his essay, Horkheimer introduces critical theory by contrasting it to what he referred to as traditional theory. According to Horkheimer, traditional theory attempts to understand and explain the world as it is, while critical theory, on the other hand, seeks to understand and explain why the world is not as it should be. The goal of traditional theory is understanding or truth, but the goal of critical theory is to produce societal change. From its very inception, critical theory has had a vision for what the world should look like. That vision was supplied by none other than Karl Marx. Marx believed that history was progressing inevitably toward a classless society, where private property would be abolished and resources would be distributed from each according to their ability to each according to their need. He predicted that the working class proletariat would eventually overthrow their bourgeois or capitalist oppressors in a workers' revolution that would usher in a communist utopia. The only thing preventing this was the workers' own complacency with their situation. Sometimes referred to as the first critical theorist, Marx took critical aim at the forces in society he believed were suppressing the revolutionary spirit in the working class. At the top of his list was religion, which Marx famously referred to as the opium of the people. In his view, religion dulls workers to the reality of their oppression by encouraging them to be content and trust that a higher power will make all things right in the hereafter. To achieve his political goals, Marx needed conflict between the classes. He wanted the working class to become angry about their situation in life so they would rise up to overthrow the capitalists and establish economic justice. Horkheimer and his associates in the Frankfurt School were disillusioned Marxist thinkers who had grown frustrated that the promised workers' revolution had not yet come to fruition in the West. Their collective project sought to understand and explain why that was. While Marx saw the world primarily in terms of economic oppression, the Frankfurt School applied Marxian analysis to other areas of society and identified additional oppressed-oppressor dynamics in areas such as race, sexuality, and gender. Drawing from the work of Italian communist Antonio Gramsci, they determined that everything we think we know about the world is actually the enforced ideology of the dominant culture designed to preserve power. Cultural hegemony is the term used to describe this cultural power. 
The ruling class utilizes hegemonic power to establish their worldview as the cultural norm. The Frankfurt School believed we should critically assess all established knowledge, systems, and institutions to identify the hegemonic power at work. That included Christianity and the church. Even in its earliest iteration, critical theory was fundamentally incompatible with Christianity. Far from being a source of neutral analytical tools, critical theory has had societal revolution as its goal from the very beginning. At first blush, the ideal Marxist world they hoped to usher in might appear to resemble the kingdom of God to come. As Christians, we do long for a day where all wrongs are made right and oppression comes to an end. When the kingdom of God is fully established, there will be no more injustice, no more poverty, no more sickness, no more hunger, and no more war. All things that are promised in a Marxist utopia. However, the kingdom of God is not primarily about these things. When Jesus came to earth, God's people were under Roman rule. They longed for a leader who would rise up and restore the kingdom of Israel. Many believed Jesus was that leader. Jesus spoke often about the kingdom of God, which they believed meant he had come to reclaim the throne. In John 6.15, we're told that Jesus withdrew from the crowd because he knew that they were about to come and make him king by force. Jesus, however, was not talking about an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. Unlike earthly kingdoms, the kingdom of God is not restricted by geography. Psalms 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. In one sense, the kingdom of God is God's rule and reign over everything for all of time. He is sovereign. To the Colossians, Paul writes, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God doesn't need a nation. He's over them all. His kingdom encompasses the whole world, and his rule and reign is supreme. But Jesus also talks about the coming of the kingdom of God. In fact, he teaches us to pray for that in the Lord's Prayer. So there's also this sense that his kingdom is not yet fully revealed here on earth. The presence of his kingdom was gloriously revealed with the incarnation of Jesus and through his teachings. But it will not be fully revealed until the second coming of Christ, when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Until then, God has left his church to display God's redemptive presence here on earth, to make the invisible kingdom visible. Expounding on this, R.C. Sproul writes, quote, We do that by living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ in our jobs, our families, our schools, and even our checkbooks, because God in Christ is king over every one of these spheres of life. The only way the kingdom of God is going to be manifest in this world before Christ comes is if we manifest it by the way we live as citizens of heaven and subjects of the king. Unquote. The church is where an unbelieving world should see the values of the kingdom put into practice. This is why we help the poor and oppressed. We care for the widow and orphan. We seek to right injustices not as an end in themselves, but as a way of displaying the heart of God and sharing the gospel. According to Pastor Kevin DeYoung, the presence of the kingdom is always marked by the advancement of the gospel. If you care about the kingdom coming, you will care about the advancement of the gospel. In DeYoung's excellent book, What is the Mission of the Church? Written with Greg Gilbert, they write, 
quote, God certainly uses means and employs us in his work, but we are not makers or bringers of the kingdom. The kingdom can be received by more and more people, but this does not entail growth of the kingdom. We herald the kingdom and live according to its rules, but we do not build it or cause it to grow because it already is and already has come. Unquote. Later they continue, quote, Biblically speaking, we as humans may proclaim, enter, reject, inherit, and possess the kingdom, but it is God and God alone who establishes and ushers it in. It is God who will reconcile all things to himself through Christ. Unquote. So as you can see, the kingdom of God is in stark contrast to the Marxist utopian world envisioned by critical theorists. Marxist utopia has no place for God. No place for God-given institutions like the family. Biblical hierarchy and standards of sexuality are seen as inherently oppressive. Where the kingdom of God is marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, Marxism is fueled by anger and resentment. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. The hopes and dreams of critical theorists are entirely of this world. Their kingdom is brought about by social activism and societal revolution. Our kingdom is brought about by God and a gift to be received. To Christians who have become enamored with social justice work, I implore you not to forget the gospel. We cannot bring about the kingdom of God by socialist revolutions or democratic elections. Let us remember, as Paul writes in Colossians, that he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. From its very inception, critical theory has been incompatible with Christianity because it sought to bring about an earthly kingdom that is totally at odds with the kingdom of God. Over the ensuing years, critical theory has mushroomed into a broad academic discipline with an ever-growing web of subdisciplines, things like cultural studies, feminist theory, queer theory, and critical race theory. Drawing heavily from postmodern and post-structuralist schools of thought, critical theory has transformed into an ideology, a complete worldview that answers the big questions of life. The explanation Horkheimer and his colleagues were looking for has been provided, as critical theory has assembled a dizzying assortment of concepts and ideas with tremendous explanatory power. Modern critical theorists are no longer trying to understand and explain why the world isn't as it should be. They believe they know. Their focus is now on praxis, or the practical application of theory, to bring about their vision of social justice, a vision they still inherit from Marx. Next time on the Great Awakening Podcast, we'll break down the core tenets of modern critical theory. Thank you to everyone who has taken time to provide ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and shared the podcast on social media. Your support is greatly appreciated. I hope you continue to find this content helpful. If you would like more information on anything covered in today's episode, links are provided in the show notes. As always, I welcome your feedback. I'd love to know what you think of the format and what concepts you'd like to have covered in future episodes. The best place to find me is Twitter, at Josh Dawes, that's D-A-W-S, no E. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, fight the good fight.